Well, hello, Christ Chapel, and hello to all of you joining us at all of our campuses in uh, Tarrant County, Johnson County, Parker County, and streaming uh, all around the world. So glad that you have uh, joined us as we are starting a new series today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, every Friday we send out uh, an email called the Pastor's Desk. And the Pastor's Desk really kind of previews what is coming up uh, for Sunday. Now, if I were to let you guess how many people open that email, uh, what percentage, what, what would you guess that would be? I, I will actually tell you, um, don't take offense to this, but I was actually pleasantly surprised at how many of you actually opened that email. 57% of you open that email on a regular basis. So I will continue to put effort into it uh, for those 57% of you. But for the 43% of you who don't open that email, uh, let me tell you what was in there this week. I basically just said that I was excited about this Sunday because we are going to begin a new series was the first thing. And you kind of got a little bit of a preview of that with the, the video that you just saw because it's a new series called Standing Up. But I also told you that another thing I was excited about was a fun announcement. Now, Ted has uh, taught me that we need to take every opportunity we can as a church to laugh. And so we've uh, introduced this new fun announcement in a way that I hope uh, you can laugh, but we'll make it with another video. The year is 2022. And while most things have gone back to what they once were, other things have yet to make their grand return, which leads us to announce our grand return of Stand and Greet. For those unfamiliar with this cultural practice, I will be your guide as to which greetings you may see during this time, as well as a few other greetings you may want to try yourself. Let's begin. At the call to stand and greet, one must remember the proper method for a handshake. First, approach your neighbor in an inviting manner. Extend your dominant shaking hand in a position resembling that of a thumbs up, but with all fingers extended. At grip, make sure that your palms are against theirs. Make sure you are making the proper eye contact with them. Nothing too intense, of course. One does not want to seem weird. However, not every neighbor may want to do the same type of greeting. In fact, here are a few other types common among the church. There's the death grip, the bear hugger, the boxer dad, the finger guns, and finally, the coffer. This is the only one currently banned. While we are excited to reinstate this cultural practice, for some, they are not ready. Here is a list of alternative greetings for those wishing to deviate from the standard method. The lost in worship. The air five. The long distance wave. The why did my mom have to bring me to big church? And finally, the man nod. Although originated by the male species, this greeting can be used by just about anyone. Now you are properly prepared to stand and greet. After centuries of cultural shifts, this practice with our neighbors continues on. May your standings be stable and your greetings full of whimsy. I'm Dr. Huey Lewis in the news, signing off.
That's right, we're bringing back the stand and greet. Special thank you to our video team and Michael Fluchet who did that. A super fantastic uh, job that they did, very talented, uh, but excited about that. So I, I think that yes, it is fun and that, that was funny, uh, but I really think it's important for us as a fellowship to connect with each other. And so it's important for us to know that, that we are in this together to support each other, to, to have a sense of that camaraderie and connectedness. And I know that that's a lot of pressure to put on those you know, 30 seconds at the beginning of a service. But, uh, and not all of that is gonna happen right there, but that is a start and that is a beginning. That's healthy because we are a body and we need to remember that we are connected as a body. And so you need to get to know those folks that you've been sitting around. You get to need to get to know their preferred method of greeting or make yours known because that will begin at the beginning of the worship services at all of our campuses next Sunday. So get ready for the stand and greet. I know some of you are confused because you're like, we've been hugging people for a long time. Like, what, what's the deal? Well, this is, we're all ready for it together. So that's what we'll be doing uh, next Sunday. Sunday. And for those of you who don't want to do it, uh, just know that standing up is healthy, okay? It's just, it, standing up is, is healthy for you. In fact, when you stand properly, proper posture is actually good for your health. I don't know if you've heard that. I've, I've heard this saying before that, st uh, that sitting is the new smoking. Have you heard that before? That we, we need to get up and we need to move, and so that's healthy for you physically. In, in fact, proper posture actually helps not only uh, muscle fatigue or with joint pain, but it actually helps with your digestion, circulation, all of those wonderful things. This, this proper posture leads to long-term health. And what is true about you physically is also true about us spiritually, that when spiritually we have the correct and proper posture, it leads to long-term health for us as individuals and long-term health for the church in general. And I wanna focus on that posture today because especially with the things that have gone on the past couple of years, I think as Christians, I've seen some of us, myself included, fall into some bad habits of posture. And what I mean by that is with everything that has gone on, we've taken sometimes this posture of sitting idly by and letting everything go on or play out as it may. Or we've gotten on our high horse and we've looked down on other people. Or we've bowed up at people and wanted to bump chests and we've gotten combative with other people. That is not the proper posture of Christ. Those kinds of postures do not lead to long-term health for you spiritually or for the church in general. We've got to understand the proper posture that Jesus asked us to take specifically in regard to the world as we represent him. But proper posture begins with proper vision, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we are obviously starting that new series called Standing Up, and I want to show you today how Jesus sees the world and therefore the posture that he takes. Because of what he sees, he takes a particular 
posture toward the world. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. But I want to tell you where we're picking up because uh, those of you who have been following along, you know that we ended in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're skipping past chapters 8 and basically chapters 9, and we're picking up at the end of chapter 9, beginning chapter 10 today. And the reason why is because, um, really, I want to focus on what God has called us to do as a church, but I'll fill you in in the gaps. If you'll remember, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, remember what the crowd said. That was the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it said that the crowd was amazed because he did not teach as one of their scribes, but he taught as one who had authority. And we focused in on that authority uh, last week. Well, then in chapters 8 and the majority of chapter 9, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over everything in the natural world. He's demonstrating his authority over the storms. He's demonstrating his authority over disease. He's demonstrating his authority over death. He's demonstrating his authority over demons even. It's it's really a validation of his authority over everything in all the earth. So he wasn't just the king who came and gave a good speech. He is the king who came and gave a great speech and then backed it up. And showed that he had all the authority that he talked about that he had had. And then we get to the end of chapter 9. And Jesus is going to continue to show his authority. But he's going to take a different posture than kings normally take. You see, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is going to see the crowds. And he's going to show us how he sees those crowds Differently. See, Jesus saw opportunities to display his authority over sin. You see, as we carry on this authority that Jesus is displaying, we see that he sees an opportunity to show his authority over sin. And this is key because. If you are king, or if you think back to kings or queens of ancient times, when they came into power, what did they most often do? They would most often exert their authority, but they did it in a way to subdue or suppress or oppress sometimes in unjust ways those folks in their territory or in their kingdom. And Jesus does not exert his authority to subdue or oppress people. He does it in a way that offers freedom to people from sin. And we see that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I mean, if any king needs an entrance, this is a great entrance into the world, into those who do not yet know him. Now, just so that you know the the links here, this verse in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 is stated verbatim in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Because it's stating he has the authority, and then he gives the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now we get the same statement because he's going to exert his authority in a different way. But he's doing the same things. He's proclaiming what? He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And remember, we go back to his baptism, and John was baptizing, but remember what John was preaching. He was preaching a baptism of repentance. Repent, why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming. Jesus is the king, and that's what Jesus is proclaiming. I am the king, and I am here. And it says he went around teaching in the synagogues. Well, what was he teaching? He was teaching that all of those Old Testament prophecies, they related to him. It's me, guys. All those things you had been looking for, ta-da, I'm here. I've arrived. The king is in the building. That's what he's going around teaching. And to validate his authority, he's healing every disease and every affliction. Why? Because Jesus has authority over sin. His kingdom does not enable nor does it accept sin. And that's why he's going around preaching against that and telling people to abandon that and to turn to him for salvation as the good king who gives freedom. See, he sees these opportunities, even though he was walking around in a broken and sinful world that honestly is no different than the brokenness that we live in today. He saw it as an opportunity, as an opportunity to offer people freedom from the things that had enslaved them and enslaved them to sin. And the reason why he saw these as opportunities is because Jesus saw the oppressive effects that sin had on people. He saw the oppressive effect that sin had on people. You see, as he's going around looking at at the folks that he's talking to, and he's healing every disease and healing every, every affliction. You can imagine, he has drawn quite a crowd. And the people that Jesus is interacting with are not the people that society normally interacted with. They were oftentimes the people that society overlooked. You see, in those days, it's really not much different than the people that we overlook today. In society, whether we're willing to admit it or not. But it was the oppressed. It was the afflicted. I mean, who did Jesus heal? It was, it was a servant. <laughs> who, did, who did Jesus cast demons out of? They were two guys that lived on the outskirts of town because nobody would accept them because they were just crazy individuals. But Jesus didn't overlook anyone. <laughs> He didn't overlook anybody in the midst of this crowd. In fact, he saw through them and saw to them. If you look at what it says in verse 36, as the, as the crowds gather. And when you talk about crowds, I mean, this would have been not hundreds of people. This would have been thousands of people coming to see this one who heals every disease and every affliction. In verse 36, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at this crowd and he has compassion on them. This word compassion, and I've preached on this before, but just to remind you, 
This word compassion is specific in the New Testament to Jesus and Jesus alone. This, this word compassion is not used of anyone else personally. And it means this, this deep movement in the bowels, meaning moved to, it, it makes me sick at my stomach kind of compassion. He, he is moved in his inward being. That's the compassion that Jesus has. As he look, it's a, because it's only used of Jesus in the New Testament, to what this tells me is this is a divine compassion. And it's because he sees beyond the needs and, and he sees beyond the physical appearance that the crowds have. That yes, crowds might be coming and they might look well-dressed, they might look well-cared for, they might just look like they're, they're curious. But Jesus sees into their souls. <laughs> he sees into what is really going on, into the condition of their hearts. And he says that they are harassed. This word harassed that's here means that they are bullied. They are oppressed. They are beaten down. They are torn apart like a corpse picked clean. That's what, that's what that word harassed means. They were harassed and they were helpless. They had no means to help themselves. This word helpless means, again, it's paired with it. It's cast down, thrown down, or oppressed. Now, you, you give those, those two adjectives to any person, and you say, if a person is harassed and helpless, I guarantee you they're hopeless. Anyone who is harassed and helpless is hopeless. Hopeless. And why did Jesus say they were harassed and helpless? It had nothing to do with uh, they needed better education. It had nothing to do with they, they needed you know, a, a place to, to live or, or anything like that. It didn't have to do with their physical needs. It didn't have to do with education. It didn't have to do with anything like that. It had everything to do with they were sheep without a shepherd. That's his, that's his solution here. They were harassed and helpless because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, these folks, obviously being a part of an agrarian society, they know what that means and they know what that looks like. Sheep without a shepherd are lamb chops on a landscape. I mean, they, they, are, they are there for anybody to take advantage of. They are vulnerable. They are scared. They are misguided. They have no place to go. And now Jesus on the scene, who in fact in John calls himself the good shepherd, is moved by compassion because they don't know him. You see, what is the role of a shepherd? The role of a shepherd, very simply, is to lead, feed, and protect. That's, that's the role of a shepherd. And the reason why they were harassed and helpless was not only because they as sheep had gone astray, just like we all have, following our own way, but they were oppressed by the religious leaders of that day who had just continued to heap up on them legalism after legalism after legalism, law after law after law. Do more. You're not doing enough to please God. God is displeased with you. Do this more. Stand up straighter. You know, all of these things that, that is this performance-based that we, 
we can't live under that weight because we can't obey, and we've already talked about it, the 613 commands that are in the Old Testament. And that's what the, the scribes and Pharisees continued to heap up onto people. They were supposed to be the shepherds. And they weren't good shepherds. They weren't leading them to freedom. They weren't feeding them God's true and pure word. They weren't protecting them. They, they were manipulating them. They were using them for their own purposes. That's why it says that they were bullied or harassed. It was by their own religious leaders. And Jesus now, the good shepherd, comes along to lead, feed, and protect. And that good shepherd, if you want an idea of what it means to follow the good shepherd, then just go back and read Psalm 23. That, that is what it means to follow the good shepherd and where he wants to take you in good times and in bad because he can, as a good shepherd, even lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. And so Jesus shows up with this compassion. And as I've told you before, whenever this term is used of Jesus, he never just feels sympathy, period. Whatever, whenever he feels this compassion, he always acts. There, there, there's always an action that follows his compassion. And he acts right here at the end of chapter 9 and going into verse 10. Because Jesus saw the overwhelming need for others to stand with him. Jesus saw the overwhelming need for others to stand with him with him. You see, as Jesus sees all the crowds, you can't forget this one thing. I told you, yes, he has a divine compassion, and Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100%, wasn't a trick question, 100% man. He's human. He's human, and as you see this crowd begin to press on him, these Thousands of people, these, these desperate people who've heard that there's hope, who've heard that there's healing, who've heard that there's an opportunity to not be weighed down and just told that they're constantly beaten down with you're not good enough. And here's somebody that's offering hope. And Jesus says, good night. Man, you guys are in terrible shape. And of course his heart is to go and to reach everyone. But being in human form, one person can only be in one place at one time. And he sees this overwhelming need and he acts. Look at verses 37 through 38 and then we'll look at the first part of verse 10. It says, then Jesus, then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I'm looking at verse, chapter 10, verse 1. And then he called to him his 12 disciples. So Jesus, looking out at the crowd, again, I told you, doesn't see them as they probably even want to appear. But he sees beyond them, he sees beyond their image, their facade, and he looks into the condition of their heart. And he says, he turns to his disciples, 
And these, these disciples would have been a bigger group right there than just the 12. Disciple means learner or, or follower. So there would have been a lot of people just following him. And so he turns to the disciples. I don't know if that would have been 100 people. I don't know if it would have been 200, 1,000. I have no idea. But he turns to his disciples and he says, guys, gals, look. The field is ripe for harvest. Look how, look how many people need to be harvested. And what that means is brought in as crop as unto the Lord. They're, they're his. They belong to him. Look how many. They're, they're so, the harvest is plentiful. There are so many that need to come to the owner of the field who need to come to Christ. And, and that's very positive in that, man, the field is ripe for harvest. They're, they're ready right now. But it can also be negative, meaning that in the Old Testament, harvest time was usually attributed to the day of judgment. And he looks out, and I think it, he means it both positive and negative. Positive, there's plenty of opportunity. But I also think there's an urgency in the negative part of Guys, the day is coming, the harvest time is coming. You know, harvest time is a season, and that season ends. And what is ripe eventually turns rotten. And if we don't get out and work the fields, then we're going to lose this crop. This crop is going to be destroyed. See, there's an urgency to what Jesus says. But the action that he takes is not intuitive, at least to me. Because what does he tell the disciples to do? What does he tell his disciples to do? Pray. Pray. Now, if I'm sitting there, I, Cody, and this is why I'm not Jesus, praise God. I would say, so would you get your rear ends out there? Would you, would you go to work? And what Jesus says is, pray to the Lord of the harvest, that, that, the, that he would send out more laborers. And to, to me, sometimes that seems counterintuitive, and it seems that way because oftentimes the way that we see prayer is passive, that we're not doing much. And what he tells us here is prayer is doing a lot. Pray to the Lord of the heart because prayer is powerful. Pray that he would send out more laborers. And it makes sense when you think about it, that we need more people in the harvest field. And here's why. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, we're coming out of the spring kind of storm season, but it was only a couple of weeks ago. and Maybe we'll get some more, but think about it this way with me. Imagine if uh, the meteorologist told you that a storm was going to come, uh, you know, tonight or tomorrow morning, and it was going to rain a whole, whole lot. And, the, you know, you probably think, I need to get out and mow the lawn before it rains. Okay? Now, if you're thinking that you need to do that, you would go out and mow your lawn. Right? But imagine if you're trying to mow the state of Texas. And you know the storm is coming tomorrow. Is it more efficient for you to immediately go outside with your own push mower? 
Or is it more efficient for you to get on the phone and begin to call everybody you know and say, get your lawnmower out and start mowing your lawn? You get your lawnmower out, start mowing your lawn, start mowing your lawn, start mowing your lawn, start... And you start recruiting people and getting that word out. The state of Texas is going to get mowed a lot faster. Not so fast if you get out there with your own. And I think that's why he says pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. Yes, we need to mow our lawns. But we also need to pray that everybody's out there mowing the lawn. Because there's so much lawn to be mowed. You see, that's why he calls his 12 disciples. And later on, we find out in uh, 10.4, or 10.2, sorry, that he calls them apostles. And it's important to understand that distinction. A, a disciple, as I told you, means learner. An apostle means sent one, one who is sent out. And Jesus turns his disciples, those who are just followers or learners, into sent out ones, into apostles. Now, the word apostle in the New Testament is very specific for someone who had been with Jesus. It's limited to these 12 and the apostle Paul. Those were the apostles. And it's not a term that can... can continues or carries on. But the way that we would understand that today is a, a different word. It's probably the word ambassador. Someone who is sent out to represent a dignitary. That's essentially what an apostle was. Jesus being the king, an apostle sent out to go and represent him. Represent him to the masses, to the crowds. And you say, well, Cody, that only applies to them. Actually, when you think about the literal meaning of the word apostle, we are called ambassadors. It's what the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. He says, all this is from God, meaning this peace that we have with God, who through Christ reconciled us, that is you and me, to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? Well, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He didn't want to count their trespasses against them. He didn't want them to be burdened and enslaved by their sin. And he entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We're the ones who are sent out into the harvest field as laborers for Christ. What are we supposed to do? Well, it's God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, would everyone be reconciled to God? You see, the action that he takes is not just to tell us to pray. It's to send people out into the harvest fields. Why? Because he sees the overwhelming need for everyone to get into the field. Everyone has a role to play. See, seeing the world as Jesus sees it, that moves us to stand for him. When, when we see the world as Jesus sees it, it moves us to stand for him. And I want to talk about this, this verb, to, to stand, the, the standing, uh, because it's going to be thematic through what Jesus says over the course of the next couple of chapters um, because oftentimes when we see the, the word stand or, or we think about the word stand, we think about it in an aggressive way, I think. It, it often has that, that kind of tone. 
Like, I'm going to stand for something, you know, and, and it's, it's this very obstinate kind of attitude that comes with standing, and, and we stand for this, or we stand against this, and what Jesus is, is calling us to do, and I think what he calls the disciples to do is not stand uh, with any sort of aggression, but to stand with compassion. See, oftentimes when we talk about standing, when I thought about it, and this passage has changed my perspective of it, I've often thought about courage, meaning that, Christ, do I have the courage to stand for you? And after studying this passage, I've realized that standing for Christ isn't so much about having courage, it's about having compassion. See, because courage is about me. And he's not asking me to stand for me. He's asking me to stand for him in the gap for people that are harassed and helpless. And he has a better way for them. He has a better way that, that, that leads to hope, that leads to life, that leads to abundant life. That's why he's asking me to stand. And I think we need to focus on that kind of posture that comes from compassion more so than, than courage so that we look strong or we, we look a, a certain way. I mean, oftentimes, honestly, let's look at the way that Jesus' life was. He didn't look strong in the way of courage. I mean, he was, he, gosh, he didn't open his mouth before the officials and went to be like a sheep to the slaughter. I mean, why? Because he had compassion. Did he stand? Absolutely, he stood. And so here's what that means for us today, Christ Chapel. I want us to focus on first standing up to represent Christ with compassion. Stand up to represent him with compassion. Let compassion take the lead. You see, I think we need to focus on what we are for just as much as we focus on what we're against. But why are we against certain things? It's because we're for other things. And I know that might not make a whole lot of difference in your mind, but man, the tone makes a whole lot of difference to those who are listening to you. And if we focus on what we're for, that, that, that posture, I think it will help because it's not us against them. It's us for them. That, that's, that's what Jesus says right here in this passage. So let's focus on standing up to represent Christ with compassion. Second, let's stand up to intercede for more laborers. Stand up to intercede for more laborers to go into the harvest field. Christ Chapel, I, I want you to come back to worship. Uh, don't let the stand and greet keep you away. Um, if you're streaming, come on. We'd love to have you if you're in the area. Uh, and I love seeing you back at church. It means the, it means the world to me because it's important for us to worship together. But I don't pray that people come to church. I pray that people come to Christ. People need to come to Christ because we cannot change their mind until God changes their hearts. And the more people come to Christ, the more laborers that he has for the harvest field. The more people he has with his mind, his eyes, and his heart. And that's what we need to pray for, is that people would come to know 
him because they're never going to be sent out into the, the harvest field if they're not first following him. You see, that's why I made the distinction. He turned his disciples into his ambassadors. They need to follow him before they're sent out for him. And that's why we pray and intercede that people would come to know Christ because we need more laborers. But then you need to stand up to answer your own prayer. Stand up to answer your own prayer. Lord, send out laborers into the harvest. Just don't send me. <laughs> Just send other people. Send missionaries. Guess what? You are a missionary. Every day you're sent out into the world and you carry his name, whether you carry it well or not. You are his. And we've got to be willing to stand up and answer our own prayer. I read a, uh, an account, a story of uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, and one of his friends. Uh, Martin Luther had a, had a friend at the very time, the early 1500s, who had the same convictions about the, the church needing uh, reform as Martin Luther did. And they came up with this deal together that Martin Luther was going to go out into the streets. He was going to go into the dust and muck and mire, and he was going to go and spread that message of reform. And the agreement that he had with his friend was his friend was just going to stay in the monastery, because remember they were monks, his friend was going to stay in the monastery and just pray the entire time. He was going to pray for Martin Luther. One night, his friend says that he had a dream. And he had a dream that there was this field of corn. And the field was massive and endless. And he said, in this field, he only saw one person working in this field. And he said in his dream that that person turned and faced him. And he had the face of Martin Luther. And he said, at that very moment, what I realized was I could not sit up and only pray, but I needed to join my friend in the field. We can't just come into church and go, pray, Lord, pray, and I'm not going to live it out. <laughs> because you are sent. Pray, 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 absolutely. And then say, Lord, here I am. Send me. The matter is too urgent to sit on the sidelines. It's time to stand up. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that, Lord, when we stand, Lord, help us to do it with compassion, with your heart, with your mind, with your eyes. But, Lord, thank you that when we stand, you stand with us. You've never left us. You've never forsaken us. Just as you told the disciples, you are with them even to the end of the age and Lord, I thank you for this section that you've included in this gospel that you're gonna not only commission us, but you're gonna tell us what to expect and how to navigate these things in this world because Lord God, you are sending us out as missionaries into this world. And so Lord, we pray, would you bring your harvest unto you, not for our glory, but for yours. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.